This is the Education Gadfly Show. The uh, you have no workers at all. You gotta put the babies to work. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your substitute host, Victoria McDougald of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Stepping in for my colleague and today's guest, Mike Petrelli, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. This week, Mike will be joining us to talk about his newly released co-edited book, Follow the Science to School, Evidence-Based Practices for Elementary Education. Welcome, Mike. It's fun to be stepping into your usual shoes. Hey, it's great to be here. And it's, yeah, it's fun to be on the other side of the microphone. Thanks for doing this, Victoria. My pleasure. And please also welcome my co-host, David Griffith. Hi, David. Hey, Victoria. I would say it's always a pleasure, but... You know, this is the first time we've done this in a while. It's nice to have you on the show. I am glad to be back, joining from sunny Orange County out here in California. So today we're going to be chatting about our new Follow the Science book in our Ed Reform Update. All right, Mike, so what's the story behind this book? Tell us about the story and who it was written for. Yeah, I would be happy to. So for longtime listeners, you probably know this is the sort of thing I've been dreaming about doing for a long time. You know, I, for forever, I've been writing about how do we get evidence-based practices into our schools? Of course, I'm not the first person to ask these questions. People have been working on this for decades. Checker, for example, when he was an assistant secretary in the Reagan administration, I think that was after the late Paleolithic era, they put out a guide on uh, how schools could use evidence-based instruction. It was called What Works. I mean, this was back in like 1986. So people have been trying this for a long time. I also, I, I have on my shelf this, this great guidebook by the American Academy of Pediatrics. And to me, it's an example of in another field, what happens is this big, thick book about, you know, here's the evidence on what you should do for a variety of ailments that kids might have. And, and illnesses and, and what best practice, evidence-based practice looks like. And I thought, well, why don't we have this for our schools? And so that's something I've always questioned. Then, you know, the pandemic happens and like a lot of other people, we thought, boy, what can we do to try to provide good advice to schools on how to help kids catch up? So that led to this crowdsource project that we ended up calling the Acceleration Imperative. You still find that online. It was a wiki, basically, to get academics and uh, practitioners to contribute to this great guidebook that's supposed to be evidence-based, but also drawing in great uh, ideas from all over the country. And that was great. And now we've got the book, which is in, in some respects, the book version of that wiki, Follow the Science to School, Evidence-Based Practices for Elementary Education. Big shout out to my co-editors, Barbara Davidson and Kathleen Carroll. It's not a huge book. It's not like the, the phone size book that the American Academy of Pediatrics has, because frankly, we don't have as much evidence on as many things. But uh, we think it does a pretty good job uh, in a pithy way of saying, here's what we know about running a great elementary school. And we hope people will read it and take it to heart. Thanks, Mike. So listeners may be wondering, why the focus on elementary education? Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. You know, look, you know, Victoria, again, as I often say, I, I am just such a big believer that elementary education, elementary schools, it's really where the battle is won or lost. It's where we have the most evidence about what works also, especially around reading going back decades, evidence that we still don't think is, is really being used in our schools, at least not all of our schools is being used in some of our schools. Well, why is that? Why can't we get it in more places? But we've also got some good evidence on early math, on writing. How do you teach kids to write? The importance is of starting with sentences. 
uh, classroom management, on and on down the list. Frankly, we don't have as much knowledge about what works once you get to middle school and certainly once you get to high school. I'd also say, look, we, we've got a lot of agreement in this country around what our elementary schools are supposed to do. That's not the case for high schools. We've been talking about on, on this show ad nauseum lately about pathways in high schools and should it be college for all or not or work or what should, what should teenagers be doing? I don't think there's much debate that we want elementary school kids, kindergartners, first, second, third graders to get off to a great start. We want them to learn how to read and to write and to do math, that arithmetic is important and then building you know, better understanding of math as they go, that, that we're teaching them how to be good people and how to do school and how to get along with other kids. So you know, all of that, there's wide societal agreement on. It's not as much of a clash of vision or values as you see in later grades. So it becomes more of a technical, you could say technocratic question of how do we do all that stuff as well as we can so that kids get off to a good start and especially so that poor kids get off to a good start because the overwhelming evidence is if you do not get off to a good start, that the clock is ticking and every grade that goes by, it is going to be harder for you to catch up and have a shot at having lots of options once you get older. Right. I think as a mom about to send her first child to kindergarten this fall, that all rings very true to me. Not a lot to argue with there. So I think even with the elementary focus of the school, this book really covers quite a lot of ground and and a wide variety of topics. Curious, which of the practices it summarizes you feel, Mike, are the most critical for educators to get right? I don't know if that's sort of school's core programs, um, you know, a high quality curriculum or school culture, or is it something else? And are there any other key takeaways you want to flag for our listeners today? Yeah. You know, look, again, a lot of this is going to be familiar for our listeners, but it'll come through again and again. Curriculum is key. That's both because of the the evidence that instructional materials can really make a difference, but it's also just the nature of a book like this. If you want to get evidence into the classroom, the best way to do that is to have instructional materials that are designed to be aligned with that evidence. You know, that's a different approach than, say, asking every teacher in America, say the, I don't know, it was probably a million and a half elementary school teachers, having them all study, you know, all of the fields of education, research and practice, psychology and and everything else, the cognitive sciences, and then try to figure out on their own uh, how to incorporate those little bits and pieces of evidence and knowledge into the classroom. That's super hard and inefficient. Instead, you know, you build instructional materials with academics, with practitioners, with people who really understand instruction, certainly, again, involving teachers for sure, but you end up with instructional materials that are high quality, that are aligned to the evidence, aligned to standards, that can work in the classroom. And then you focus on training teachers, helping them really understand the curriculum, understand it well, and teach that curriculum well. And by doing that, they are teaching evidence-based practices. So We just don't think in an elementary school, there is any excuse for any school in America to tell teachers, hey, you just go in and you close the door and you all kind of do the best you can and we'll trust your judgment. That's not professionalism. That's insanity. And so that probably comes through quite a bit in here. David, you want to get in here, it sounds like. I was just going to say, Mike, I think that's the strongest case for curriculum I've ever heard you make. Curriculum is sort of the, um, well, the delivery system for a lot of other things, really, in, in a way. I think it's a fair point. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Appreciate that. Well, look, look it's, it's, good. it's we're not usually this uh, polite to one another, Victoria. You're having a good impact on us. Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's the fundamental technology of schools is the curriculum and the instructional. It basically says here's what kids and teachers should be doing all day, and it's our best chance 
to incorporate that evidence. Now, that does not mean that there has to be only one curriculum or a national curriculum. That is not the case at all. But it also means there's not an infinite number of high quality curricular programs out there. There's just, you know, then in each subject, there's, you know, a handful that seem to have been designed with the evidence in mind and and in a way that really works. Mike, where were you most frustrated by the lack of evidence? Oh, gosh. But I'm just. (laughs) Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Boy, I you know, I think. You know, especially in light of the pandemic and everything we've been through, I think the question around mental health is still a big mm-hmm. question mark. We have a section in here on helping kids address mental health concerns, but it's it's such a vast area. Of course, that's a whole nother field of people that that do childhood mental health. But how can schools best address the mental health needs of kids? I think, you know, there, there's widespread agreement right now that we want schools to do more. We need schools to do more. You know, do we really know what to do? how to pay for it, how to design it, you know, what kind of people to hire or contract out to, you know, is it just like, okay, a certain number of kids are going to need therapists and they need therapy once a week and we got to figure out a way to get them that and to pay for it. I mean, I just think that it's, it's one of those areas where we just don't know. And, you know, maybe on the similar way around social emotional learning and character ed. I mean, is it non-cognitive skills? Yeah. Yes. I think it's that. I think, look, I think we do know quite a bit, more than uh, we often talk about, about teaching reading and writing and mathematics and the importance of teaching the, the subject matters like history and science and, and the arts, especially for reading comprehension. I think this other stuff, we, we all know it's important, but we just don't have as strong evidence on exactly what to do. Great question, David. You know, figuring out how to address academic and social-emotional learning in concert is an especially pressing issue today. And thanks so much, Mike. I think we're going to have to leave it there, but we hope everyone checks out Follow the Science to School, which is available on Amazon.com, as well as John Cat Education's online bookshop. And now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. Happy official spring to you. Thank you. I've got some uh, little bulbs popping out in my yard, which is nice. And and what do you think about this? You know, the Senate passed this bill to have daylight savings time all year round. Love it. Please. Why can't we do that? Yes. It doesn't actually mean more sunshine. (laughs) Why not? (laughs) (laughs) You have to take it from somewhere. From the morning, you're gonna have little kids out there at the bus stop in in oh, certain places. Well, I guess people for little, months guess on end in the dark. Little kids think about that. I am not one of them. So Mm-mm. some sleep experts who are saying they got it wrong. Yes, like that, yeah, right? the, yeah. The, the sleep experts say we should not be changing our clocks. They agree with that part, but it should always be standard time. Right. Oh, yeah. So of course okay. the other one passed by unanimous consent. Unanimous right? consent. Yeah, naturally, I, I, I do love that. I do love that. All right, Amber, what you got for oh, us this week? All right. We have a new study in the Economics of Education Review Journal. It's a fancy journal that attempts to measure the effects of hours of employment in high school on achievement, cognitive skills, and risky behavior. Um, Mike, you've been writing about this. I was going to say, this is is right on on point. um, Of course, this is, I assume, uh, you know, mean you mean after school and on the weekends versus I've been saying, let's just do it during the day. But it's in Denmark. So sorry. Uh, It's just had to. Okay. but it's sort of, it's going to okay. help us a little bit. I think. But, but, but tell us, like these kids, you mean so while they're in, going to school? In Denmark, the yeah. legal working age is 13. Wow. 13 wow. in Denmark. 
This is what happens when you have a really bad baby bust. And the uh, authors, you have no workers at all. You got to put the babies to work. The authors were interested in the effects of being able to work on ninth graders. Okay. Since uh, apparently that's the last uh, compulsory grade in Denmark. Um, and we have less research on the, the younger kids and on the older high school students. So, okay. Uh, in Denmark, students age 15 to 16, which again are your typically your ninth graders, are allowed to work up to two hours on school days and a maximum of 12 hours per school week. Again, ninth grade, final year of compulsory education. There's no uni- random, random, no universal minimum wage in the country. So I'm like, how much do these kids make it? Huh. <laughs> minimum wage is industry specific and largely depends on industry collective bargaining agreements in order to address the endogenous selection into an employment. And while wow, this gets interesting, their sample is comprised of, what do you think? David, you mean how many people? Think, think creatively. Like how would we get around environmentally, environmental factors? Oh gosh, this is a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> I have no idea. It's based on twins. Oh, yeah. Uh, 2,236 twins to be exact. They were born that, between 1996 and 2002 and they lived in Denmark at age 16. Is that every twin in Denmark? It must be. <laughs> Seriously. Twins must be the same gender, although not necessarily identical twins. And both have had to have a job in grade nine. Whew. The idea is that twins share a similar environmental background like mm-hmm. family, school, childcare, mm-hmm. and neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So the variation in school year work experience within pairs of employed twins during their final year of compulsory school should be independent of their individual outcomes once they account for skill level, behavioral outcomes, and work experience of students prior to grade nine, all of which they do. Mm-hmm. Finally, they are measuring, just to get this in your head, they're measuring the returns to work experience accumulated during the first eight months of grade nine only. So it's not a ton of, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. work experience we're measuring here. They're controlling for industry and gender as well. They omit those last three months of grade nine as their measured outcomes, which is GPA from grade nine exit exams, school absences and school dropout rates. That's what they're measuring mm-hmm. are measured during those last few months that they're not counting. Right. Except for incidences of criminal charges. They're also looking at that and they're measuring that in the subsequent year. Mm-hmm. Okay. First on the descriptive front, employment is very common among teenagers in Denmark. The fraction who have worked in a paid job at some point during the school year increases steadily with age from 17% at age 13 are working. at age 16. Second, conditional on school year employment, the average number of hours of work during the school year also increases gradually with age, an average of around 51 hours per year at age 13 to around 207 hours per year at age 16. Hmm. The most common occupations are in sales, delivery and warehouse assistance, office work, kitchen assistant, cleaning, production work in the industry, and postal and library services. As for the impact analysis, they find that a one standard deviation increase, which corresponds to three additional work hours around the sample mean of work experience obtained again during the first eight months of grade Mm -hmm. nine, increases the percentile rank on the grade nine exit exam GPA score distribution. So that's their academic Mm -hmm. measure by 2.3% decreases the probability of being registered for a non-traffic related crime in the following year by 0.9 percentage points and increases the years of schooling by age 20 by one month. 
They also find suggestive evidence that work experience reduces school absences and dropouts in those last three months of the ninth grade school year. Finally, they find evidence of diminishing returns. Specifically, students with school year employment during grade nine work four hours per week on average, but they find positive effects on skill formation of working these three additional hours per week. So in other words, on average, seven hours per week. And the evidence of diminishing marginal returns such that for the average student, the optimal number of work hours is around 10 hours per week. Mm-hmm. Working in excess of the legal limit of 12 hours during a week apparently leaves too little time for schoolwork. Makes a lot of sense. But the question is correlation causation, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I still don't know how we get around. I guess you got twins, twins Mike. Twins. They're twins. twins. Said it? That's, that's they're twins, it. Mike. That's how you get around it. <laughs> but they're not identical twins. They're, they're not right? identical so twins. this is like siblings. And everybody who's ever had children knows that <laughs> siblings are very different from one another. And so it could be that the same thing that makes you... Uh, motivated to go get a job uh, and work more could be helping you do better at school, right? The same thing. Yeah, that the, the, the you know whatever you want to call these non-cognitive yeah, skills, your yeah. get up and go versus your lazy bum brother <laughs> who doesn't want to do either of these things. <laughs> it it mean, could no, be. I it mean, could be Mike, but even even if that's I don't know. I mean. Yeah. Okay. It doesn't necessarily. I mean, how are we going to a random experiment? Like, how how much better can we get? I mean, I know I'm not the editor of a fancy (laughs) economics journal, but I'm just saying I know a thing or two about brothers. Okay. Yeah. I guess. I mean, I would just say though. I mean, at a minimum, this suggests that this is not the end of the world, right? You're not going to consign children to you know a life of servitude by yeah introducing them to the concept of work in no. high school. And, and there were, used to be, you know, Steinberg, I'm forgetting his first name, Lawrence, Lawrence Steinberg, I think, you know, wrote a book about working during high school back in the day, 20 years ago, maybe, that there were findings back then that said that it really did hurt. It really was, a, you know, could harm kids' academic achievement. Now, you know, this could have been because they were really working too many hours and it was right. late at night and they were sleepy the next day and da 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 da, da. Yeah, I mean... I've been trying to I've been trying to interrogate my own feelings on this since you, you know, first proposed this idea that we should do more of this. Right. And I mean, I'll tell you what I like about it. Right. It feels genuinely realistic to me. Right. Mm -hmm. The thing that's always bothered me about the whole CT in high school, as it's traditionally been framed, Mm -hmm. is it's like, oh, they're going to take a class on how to build solar panels. (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. And then they're going to go they're going to graduate and then they're going to get hired by a solar panel company or something. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it just. It's not it's that not, tightly linked. It, it strikes mm-hmm. the whole idea is just strikes me as not not realistic, right? right? Mm-hmm. This is like talking about well, no, they're actually going to work, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and because they have worked, they will know how to work, right? right? And mm-hmm. these are jobs that actually exist, not jobs that we wish existed. Mm-hmm. And, and yes, we're and that they have the skills to do because it's fairly low skilled work. It, right? it is, and so I mean. We're going to get pushed back on this, but I, I think it's worth trying. I really do. Um, mm-hmm. Especially this notion of like, you know, you do make me a little nervous when you talk about, I don't know, starting junior year, kids just stop going to school. Right. But I like the, I really like the idea of phasing it in mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe 10 hours a week or, mm-hmm. or whatever it is, just mm-hmm. kind of giving kids a taste of the real world while continuing yeah. to. Right. Yeah. But but it changes the role of teachers and staff, right? Mm-hmm. Because they become, I mean, what you're writing is they become more um, sort of work mentors, yeah. right? That, right. Mm-hmm. I mean, you have a whole new role of somebody whose job it would be is to, you know, check in on these kids. But mm-hmm. think of it like a summer jobs program, but during the year, you know, mm-hmm. and maybe, maybe a halfway point would be 
the summer jobs program, which you've reported on, have mm-hmm. some real uh, evidence of effectiveness. Let's have weekend jobs programs, mm-hmm. you know, or let's have after school jobs programs. I mean, let's just expand these summer job programs, maybe as a starting point. I still worry about what the kids are doing during the school day, that it might be so boring and mm-hmm. frustrating and pointless right. and abysmal that we're going to lose them. But hey, if as a starting point, if we said, let's let's really help low-income kids get access to jobs, because this is one of the things mm-hmm. we, we just know that it's it's so crazy that the affluent kids who need the jobs the least are the ones more likely to get it right. in America. And even the Christo Ray private schools, right? The Catholic mm-hmm. school's been doing a version of this yeah. model where yeah. kids are doing, what, eight hours a week yeah. because That's they're right. in the office one hour, yeah. uh, I mean, one day a week. Yeah, I'm not sure that, like, at least as I'm thinking about this, it's not like work has to be the dominant thing that's going on here, right? Yeah. I mean, you could get a fairly substantial amount of work experience and still spend most of your time in school. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Particularly if we rework the school year and mm-hmm. the school week and pretty much everything else that doesn't particularly make sense anymore. Yeah, right. Um, so they're leaving school. I mean, kids do this, right? Well, seniors do. They leave, like, once they get all their credits. I remember kids at my school mm-hmm. can leave at one o'clock and they mm-hmm. go to their job, yeah. you know? Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. you were you had all your CEUs or whatever we call them, Carnegie units right. in. Yeah. Right. I'm trying to think about which part of this is is most incompatible <laughs> with our current approach to schooling in America. I think yeah. pretty much all of it. And yeah, I don't know. I, I'm surprised. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't know that Denmark did this. I don't know very much about Denmark. Let's have more <laughs> international studies. Uh, and the, the twin studies are pretty cool. I, I will, for another day, I, I do wonder if we can do more sibling studies, if that works almost as well. Mm-hmm. I guess you've got a little bit of a challenge. In, no, no. Uh, siblings are very different from each other. Is that it? Knows that. <laughs> and, and wait, 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 wait. Twins are siblings. <laughs> Yeah, that's different. And they're not identical. So the only difference is that they're it's being different. raised and, at okay, the same time. Different. In all fairness, all right. this study did have some reports on siblings as well, but I kind of skipped over those right. pages because right. I was most interested in the twins. Fair enough. <laughs> all right. Well, good stuff, Amber. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. But that is all the time we've got for this week. So until next week, I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.